This episode of the Physio Foundations podcast is part two of my conversation with physiotherapist Jordan Rutherford. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Jordan's clinical interests, particularly with golf. And we're going to be talking about strength and conditioning and measuring strength and function in the clinic with handheld dynamometers and force plates. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's go. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast for another week where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So if you want an introduction to this week's guest, if you've clicked on this episode first, perhaps go back and listen to last week where Jordan talks about his background and interests and you'll know a bit more about him because on this episode, we're going to go straight in. So Jordan, welcome back to Physio Foundations. Thanks very much. Let's go. Back. <laughs> Let's get straight back into our conversation. So we know who you are. We know what you're interested in and your teaching interests, but let's talk a bit more about your clinical work and, and experience. And, and specifically, um, you've told me some really interesting stories when we work together about some of your travel with golf, with the Professional Golf Association in Australia, or, or is Australasia, you were saying? Um, yeah, yeah. So the PGA Australasia. Tour of Australasia covers um, Australia, New Zealand, and then parts of Papua New Guinea as well as okay. part of the tour. So, yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah, and then we've also had many conversations about some of the interesting things you do in your clinic. For example, uh, objective measures of strength and function with force plates and handheld dynamometers, and your strength and conditioning interests and what you do with people in the clinic. So. Tell us about the the PGA. What's it like working with golfers? What are some of your interests in? And you play golf yourself. And yeah, so yeah. What, what are some of your interests in golf and and as being a physio working in golf? Uh, so I initially I was more a basketball guy, but I got injured a fair bit, um, and that's where I picked up golf through my sort of mid teenage years and and really enjoyed it and at the, at the time it was really the only option so I had to get into something so I chose golf and um, and then between high school and, and university when I knew I was going to become a physio at some point or at least I was getting into the course um, I got to go over to the US um, and, and see one of the big golf tournaments over there the, the final of the FedEx Cup and Oh, wow. Guy standing on the 18th green that wins the tournament. I think he won $12 million that year. And so it was a big tournament um, or $12 million that day. So um, I did get to go into the PGA Tour van that day and see what the, what they call physical therapists over in the US, but um, what they did. And I thought, gee, this would be cool. Um, wow. That's, what an experience. Yeah. And that, so that was sort of before it even started the physio course, but I thought, yeah, this would be cool. It'd be nice to, if this ever was an opportunity, this would be what I'd like to do with physio. Um, so that was where the, the essentially maybe the passion or the, what I decided I'd like to do in physio started. And then fast forward down the track, you know, when I got into private practice and started doing, or well, at least having an interest in treating golfers and within what I could see at the clinic I was at, you know, try to, do what I could in the golf space, but then the PGA opportunity came along and um, now I, that's sort of my niche area of, of physio. So I get to see lots of golfers and, and professional golfers as well. So it's, they're definitely different to the uh, irregular um, 
Well, I mean, the, the amateur golf is fairly similar to your regular run-of-the-mill general population, but um, elite golfers are a little bit of a different breed altogether. <laughs> Why are they different? Um, it's an individual sport. I'm sure people that do tennis have a similar um, experience. So it's an individual sport. They're very very much self-driven athletes, a little bit obsessive at times, quite obsessive. Uh, it's a strange living, I think, you know, you see the guys out on tour and it's a, you know, week at a time, you do a practice round on Tuesday, pro-am on Wednesday, playing Thursday, Friday, there's a cut on Friday. So anyone who doesn't finish in the top half of the field earns zero dollars that week. And then mm. if you do make the cut, you play Saturday and Sunday and then you travel to the next place and lather, rinse and repeat. So it, it's a different kind of living. And, and right. there's a subset. Too. Yeah. who are not making $12 million a day and who are... That is a small minority. Yeah, who are trying to trying yeah. to um, get by. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of mm. grinding and, you know, they're out there in the rain and the hail, hitting balls in the range and practicing when no one else would want to be practicing. So they're, they're, good. they're good to work with in that they are very um, driven and therefore... Uh, if you ask them to do things, they often do it. So they're an easy group of people to work with too. Mm. Although sometimes quite superstitious, so that doesn't help. Oh, okay. Oh, come <laughs> on. Give us an example. Uh, I mean, a lot of it, as a practical one for me, a lot of them will, will say, I only have, I only see a physio on these particular days and because, you know, one time oh, wow. I was ever, you know, sore on a Friday and you know, I missed the cut and now I never see anyone unless it's a Tuesday or something. I don't know, you know things yeah. like that. And you just, it's probably uh, some lucky underwear out there or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've watched some documentaries of the SpaceX team and, mm. and their, um, their, rocket launches against the odds and everything. And there's a lot of superstition in the, mm -hmm. in the team there. I can see why. Yeah. 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 And yeah, look, golf, anyone who's played golf before knows the feeling of just, it just it's only a little bit of change of mindset and the ball flies off in the wrong direction. And yeah, it's, well, it's amazing dealing, that they can do what they do. Yeah. You're dealing with millimeters and, and degrees, like uh, the mm. difference, the difference for a tour pro or you swing it fairly quick and it, two degrees open on the face or two degrees closed is, is literally 60 meters. So that could be in the water or on the one wow. side of the fairway or the other side of the fairway or somewhere in between, hopefully. Um, so, you know, that it's a precision sport and it's a one movement or generally one movement sport. So it's quite predictable in terms of the expectations of the athlete, you know, exactly what they need to do and they do it hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a week. And so just as, you know, it's, it's all about trying to get the precision side of things and help them feel like they can reproduce the same movement over and over and over and then load management and, um, and managing injuries. So they're different. They don't, you don't get many ACLs in golf, yeah. <laughs> um, but you do get a lot of overuse injuries. Um, so that's the main things I sort of deal with. Yeah. Tell, tell us more about the injuries that you can get and then we can talk about it some of the unique management strategies that you may not have had to implement if you haven't worked with that population. Yeah. So like as a, if you start with a right-handed golfer, so they you know, turn in a significant thoracic rotation. So, you know, it can be 60, 80, 90 degrees, you know, thoracic rotation right. um, at speed. And then so that if there's any dysfunction there, they're going to feel like that, 
makes a big difference. Uh, and then you've got low back, which is doing a lot of sort of lateral movement um, depending on the, the golf swing, but generally into sort of right lateral flexion and um, almost in a right extension quadrant that they're going into mm-hmm. at impact. And then left hip is rotating internally at significant range of motion. So those sort of three spots tend to be the things where overuse injuries come up, left hip, right side, low back and thoracic spine. That's yeah. That's really well explained. That makes sense. And so, in things that if ninety degrees of thoracic rotation, it's easy to lose that range of motion um, yeah. just within a day as you travel. Yeah. You become stiff, or you've you've just stiff from the day before. Yep. And you, especially if you, what did you say before? You're out there in the hail and the rain and and the mud. So, uh, what sort of uh, warm up program do they do? What, what are they? I, I guess they're all different. Everyone, yeah. they have superstitions yeah. and yeah. they'll have unique programs as well. But what's a typical preparation before you start swinging hard uh, at golf balls? Yeah, so a lot of them have a, a dynamic stretching routine, uh, you know, banded sort of, and I don't love the word activation, but yeah, that's what they'd refer to it as, um, like neuromuscular type uh, drills, Um They'll do. They'll have probably a fairly heavy lifting program um, to do during a tournament period because you know you're avoiding DOMs, but you're maintaining sort of top end strength. Um, and then they'll probably have a progressive sort of range session that will start with a smaller pitching and, and smaller movements that require less range, and then build up into high speed stuff later mm. in a session, so they're ready to go. And what role do you have? Well, a better way to ask this question is: How do you balance being a golfer yourself and and the knowledge you have? How how do you avoid balancing, or how do you avoid going into the domain of the coach? Yeah, so, that's difficult. Yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet it is. I think you know I try to draw as much of it as much of a line between myself and golf coaches as as, as possible. But there's always going to be a little bit of overlap. Um, my uh, way of looking at it is I like to try and create or help someone be as mobile, strong and have as much, you know, I guess, uh, body awareness and neuromuscular control as possible in movements that I know are important for a golf swing so that then they're easy to coach. Mm-hmm. So you need to understand that golf swing to make that happen because you need to know what they need and then I'm not trying to change their swing I'm just trying to make them you know have the ability to uh, control their pelvis on its own and and uh, dissociate that from their lumbar spine and thoracic spine um, or vice versa and you know how much shoulder external rotation they need how much thoracic rotation they need or hip range and glute strength single leg balance all that stuff that is helpful and then leave it up to their coach from there. <laughs> and if they have particular things that they're working on, as like, I'm trying to do this, then find some drills or exercises or things that um, help them achieve that. And usually if I can keep a little white ball away from that exercise, then I've, I've tried to keep myself away from being a golf coach as much as possible. Mm. But having said all that, your, your love of golf, your experience with it, your knowledge of it, really plays into that, you know, injury prevention and, and assessment and and diagnosis that you do. So could you assess someone um, who you 
perhaps in a blinded way, he didn't know if they're a golfer or not, just assess somebody yeah. and and measure things and and make some predictions about potential injuries they'd have if they did that much repetitive of high load activity in golf and maybe even predict their performance in the same way that you could look at my shoulders and go, I don't recommend you t- take up long distance swimming I'd almost <laughs> unless you want to do some work on that maybe. Yeah. I'd almost go one step further and say, I, I feel like, you know, if you can understand the physical requirements of a golf swing, because it is so predictable, it's a, a single movement sport, like I said, but I'm sure I can, you know, and there's particular studies that look at, you know, side plank and it's not a great test, but a side plank endurance test relating to low back pain in golfers. So if they've got a deficit on left side plank, then they're far more likely to have right side low back pain. Um, hmm. So things like that. But I, I'd almost go one step further and say, I reckon if I saw how someone's shoulder moved or how much rotation they had or things, I'd almost be able to figure out where they're going to hit it too. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. You know, so- like there's things that you go, if, if you, you know, don't have enough shoulder external rotation, you're more likely to you know, bring the club out in front of you so the club path is left so the ball's going right. So you could tell them that they have a slice or probably that they hook the ball or whatever just by looking at how their body moves. So, yeah. I think- Isn't that interesting? You could do that with me next time we're at work and then I'll go and have a hack with the kids when yeah. they play their little yeah. um, games of golf and see if you're right. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like going – going to a question that you and I were talking about offline, mm-hmm. which was your interests in potentially measuring some of the, um, some of the data with the people you work with in your yep. clinic. And so you mentioned a club head speed as yep. being this parameter that's really important for performance. That makes sense to me as someone who can't play golf very well, that moving that club head onto the ball with speed yep. for, for distance and control. And, um, and so you're interested in, preventing injuries and performance. Can you tell us a bit about your, your interests in, you know, so there's predictors of club head speed and the, and the strength tests that you might want to do? Yeah, well, I think you know, if I've got a golfer and, and I guess that maybe I'll be on a bit of a tangent as to how I got into strength and conditioning, but, you know, you see a patient and they've got an injury and you get them back to a certain point where maybe they're relatively pain-free or ready for going back to the gym. And if you're not in a scenario where you can actually get them to do some performance type stuff, that's maybe where your role ends and you have to hand them over to somewhere else. So that's how I kind of got into strength and conditioning in the first place was you get people to a certain point and then I have to say, well, here's what I think you could do at the gym, but, I kind of have to say, let have a crack. Um, and then by doing a bit of strength and conditioning training and, and getting involved in that a little bit, then you can see people past the injury point, past rehab and into performance and enjoying what they do and back to, you know, yeah, performance rather than just rehab. So that's how I got into it. And and so that then, you know, I might have a golfer that comes in, they've got a rotator cuff tear or, you know, um, hip OA or, you know, just a bit of, a sore thoracic spine but then you can start to pose the idea of how can you know how can i help you be a better golfer or enjoy your golf more and and be less likely to have injury and so uh, having objective measures around what's important for that um person to to be a better golfer or my role as a physio you know to be a better golfer the, the thing i can add is speed speed and strength and 
body control. Um, so that's what I can offer someone. I can sort of do a test, figure out where they're deficient and, and then say, hey, well, this is how you can make your body uh, more susceptible to being a good golfer. Can't always promise that they will be a better golfer, but at least give them the tools, like I said before, make them a better tool for a golf coach to do something with or um, help them hit it a bit further or whatever they do. And the beauty about you working in a university as well as your clinical teaching is you've got access to people who do that stuff for a living in terms of helping you plan if you were to collect data in the clinic, um, plan a way to do that ethically. If you want to present it externally, you've got your ethics committees um, mm. who can help manage that. And yeah, that's a big segue. You segued and I segued further, but um, <laughs> potentially if you're a clinician listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I would like to mm. be involved in research, it's very scalable. You can you can do clinical research that's unpublished, so a quality improvement activity um, within your um, within your clinic, just considering the reliability and validity of the measures that you've got, um, standardised ways of collecting it, and then looking for patterns. And that's exactly what we did um, here in a small scale. We probably had thirty or forty people come through and do a, a standardised set of tests and look at then you know and my clinic's right next door to four golf simulators right behind me. If you hear any golf balls hitting the back wall. Um, so we can just walk right next door, test club at speed, and, mm. and then look at how they're correlated together. So that's pretty exciting to be able to to do that. And I, then you can so that helps form how to, what's a good exercise program for for the average golfer. Where, where's the the low hanging fruits in strength and power that um, are going to give the best results? So it's certainly an exciting space, and and it's a good opportunity working through Monash to to be around people that research is their job and. You know, while we do a lot of research as part of the course, it's certainly not something that I've done lots of. It'd be good to get into that space a little bit and be able to contribute to, you know, research and um, yeah, improve my own practice, but also maybe contribute to physios and golf and and be a little bit of uh, yeah, more uh, knowledgeable in that space. Mm. And it, it really does feed back into your clinical work and your teaching work. Uh, it's really good when clinical questions are driven from observations in the clinic. Mm. Um, and of course, then you need that structure of research of how you would approach it and, and reduce bias. And of course, the organizational stuff of how you might collect data. And it's just very, like I said before, very scalable. You can do small projects and you can be involved with researchers and you can do big big projects and publish them. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, hang on, I do want to get involved in research. There's, you can be involved with supervisions of students. You become an external co-supervisor. It's light touch work, really. Your, your main job is to provide access and sort of supervise them on site. The academics do the bulk of the work in terms of training the students' research skills. Um, that's if you've got a student involved and you can get involved in data collection yourself. Sort of an interesting topic that we got onto offline yeah. I thought I want to bring this up on the and on these the days like the and what we're probably going to talk about with dynamometry like that stuff is a lot more accessible these days in clinics and mm. um, a lot more places have that available so a, a fairly sort of basic research study is not that hard because um, you know you can objectify data fairly easy and it's not thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of equipment and big outlay to try and do that stuff you know it's out there and it's fairly easy to use now mm. 
so you can put your time into study design and 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 doing it well. Um, let, let, let's talk about then then the handheld dynamometers and force plates and how you're using technology and objective measures of function and strength. So. Um, and I'm not, I've, I've said this before, I'm not that interested in brands. The, the most, it's like runners. The runners mm. will say, the first thing they want to talk about is their running shoes. I want to know where you're running, you know? So, yeah. so you can talk about them if you like, but I'm not endorsing no, that's anything. Okay. And, um, but so tell, tell us about what you do in the clinic. How do you use, how do you go beyond the manual muscle tests and, and objectify measures of strength? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I don't, know the last time where I've actually gone through and done a manual muscle test <laughs> aside from teaching it um, for, for a long time because now I see the value in putting an actual number on it um, and I think that the Oxford scale stuff is good from grade zero to three and then it becomes a little bit uh, wishy-washy maybe you know the well, all, all it is, is it. Yeah, the actual scale all it is is some resistance yeah and the maximum resistance that the op, i want to know how much that do. is yeah you know and if, if jill the 90 year old lady who's had a fall and you're getting it back and if we could say she has grade five strength and then there's a guy who's a power lifter olympic power lifter, and he's got grade five strength so mm. he's or if you know his shoulder's a bit sore and he goes, oh, it feels a little bit weak on my right side you go, well, we've got grade five strength. <laughs> but, uh, you know, being able to objectify exactly what they've lost or um, where they're a little bit deficient is is helpful for me in, in sort of, again, guiding what what exercise is going to be helpful for this person. Um, and along with that for the patient, they get to see where they're at and, and then their progress across time rather than trust it you go everyone says oh you got weak glutes which is a classic um yeah but you know and i could stand there and tell people that but i like that by doing objective testing that you can't it can't really lie to you unless mm. you set it up poorly um and so you know you might hypothesize that someone has weak glute mead <laughs> uh, but they might just be you know really weak in their hamstring or um, adductors or something, I don't know, there, there might be somewhere that you didn't think about that um, or it was hard to test and then you've got this data in front of you go, oh, well, how do I rationalize that? Um, so it does help guide, you know, where you might choose to do exercise and what you might choose to do from a strength point of view, but also uh, I think it helps a lot with um, even your clinical reasoning skills that you start to see people go, oh, actually, maybe not everyone's glute meat is weak. <laughs> and, uh, maybe there's other things that are worth looking at and you can then look at the data and go, okay, well, how's it all relate? So, yeah, I think um, it started off with the strength and conditioning stuff for me doing, you know, trying to be as objective as possible in doing maybe a one rep max test or a three or a five rep max test and then looking at exercise as a percentage of one rep max. But, uh, yeah, it's hard to do with, our example of Jill, the 91-year-old lady, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not going to do a one rep max test with her. But, um, yeah, having a, having another tool to maybe uh, look at how she is, you know, day 10 post total knee replacement and then how that changes over time and looking at right versus left and patient buy-in is always good and, and then it helps me um, to help them. So I get a bit more efficient, I think. Yeah, I agree with all that. I've used handheld dynamometry as a researcher, as a clinician, and then 
as an educator, both in an university and externally. And one thing I like to always remind everyone is you say you've taught students how to do a manual muscle test and agree that whatever you're feeling in your hands is not a measurement. It's just their willingness to push against you. Um, And it's, it's very much just whatever that person, your perception of what they pushed against. It's it's actually quite difficult to tell, to to measure real differences between the sides as well, even if you think you can, Mm. but all the work that you did to set up that manual muscle test in a way that's, that has standardized instructions, good levers for you. Um, you are in a position where you're at 90 degrees to their lever. Um, you're applying force uh, in a controlled way with, with your instructions. All of that is prerequisite yeah. to even get the dynamometer out of the box. And I think that's why I brought the running shoe analogy up before, because people will want to talk about which device should I get. You should spend 95% of your time thinking about your test setup, mm. instructions, um, which side you test first, how many times you're going to do it. Is there a learning effect? Yeah. We could go on and on. And so you should do all of that with your manual muscle test. So, you, so the criticism of you only teaching that in university, I think is, I think students need to be exposed to what you would do next. Mm. Um, but if you just, if your solution is just to start off with dynamometry, you're going to get, you're not going to have reliability is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and you're right. You know, you could have a, $20,000 set up and get very poor uh, data from that. Or you can use literally one of those luggage uh, or like meat hook type setups and get really reliable data from it. So yeah, you're right. The the setup and and instructions and all that sort of thing that you would do for a manual muscle test is absolutely applicable. What are some um, tips then that you would give people who are using handheld dynamometry in the clinic to make sure they've got a repeatable, reliable setup. And um, uh, I think, uh, you know, obviously all the principles around manual muscle testing, it, like I said, applicable. So making sure you're positioning the patient the same each time, where are you pushing from on that lever? And, and, and is that a standardized procedure that you use? So if you're doing, you know, sideline hip abduction, you always push from, basically just proximal to the lateral malleolus or if you do it just at the lateral knee, you might get a different result, but make sure you're doing that each time the same so that then your outcomes are going to be reliable um, and you can see the progress there. Um, yeah, that'd probably be the main one, just making it sure it's the same each time. When you're working with a person and you're just comparing limbs, mm-hmm. do you typically just do force or do you – there's no not really a rationale to to calculate torque, which is lever mm. arm times force. Yeah. Um, if you're just comparing between the limbs of people, really, it's just the force between the sides. But do you calculate torque or body weight normalized torque when you want to compare to the literature, or it, yeah, how do you I'm, typically roll I just in the do clinic? Peak force. Um, generally, you can uh, the stuff that I've got in the clinic is nice and easy from a user interface point of view. That you know it gives us peak force rate of force development um, and then because when you put in a patient into that software that you put in their body weight and so it gives you a percentage body weight um, and then you've got a, that comparison. So it might say, you know, you're 42% stronger on the left side. Um, this is the peak force. Here's the peak you know, rate of force development and you're at, you know, 33% body weight on the right and, you know, 
well, I can't remember which one I said was weaker, but uh, <laughs> and a different percentage on the the left. So um, that helps to sort of in that scenario that I'm looking at a few different things. Um, it depends on depends on what you want to get across to the patient, I suppose. You know, mm. Sometimes, and, yeah. And if you're benchmarking it to where someone should be in terms of normative data, yeah. That's and, and I, I realise we're going back to basics, but this is yeah. physio foundations here. If yeah. you're comparing people who who are taller and shorter, this yeah. is why you convert to talk and you're multiplying their lever arm by the force. Yeah. And then if you want to compare to you know, to other people who are heavier and smaller, heavy, heavier people, generally stronger. So it's body weight normalized, so divide it by body weight. And mm-hmm. then in the literature, that's those numbers that you see for normal strength for, for joints are body weight normalized torque. So yeah. torque divided by, you know, torque times lever arm, sorry, force times lever arm equals torque, torque divided by body weight. Um, bit of a lesson on, on that because it's, it's, mm. it's something that I, I Often see people go, oh, I don't, yeah, it's, that's the complex research stuff. I don't, I don't want to do that, but it's so easy. And there's calculators, like you mentioned, that you can use. You know, a lot of the software you can just do it in Excel right now, yeah. and then you can compare it to those studies. There's a lot of good people putting out literature and, and summaries of literature now, yeah. of with normal values that you can use. Yeah, and that definitely, you know, it, like I've said a long ago, it just helps. Really helps you guide you know, what's an app. A relatively abnormal finding, um, and what's a good finding, and and how do we then devise a way to to fix that? Because I guess that's the end, at the end of the day, you know, it's really a tool to help guide what you do with a patient. That's not the end product, um, mm. so it's just another tool we've got to help find things that aren't normal and try and help get them back to normal, whether that's you know normal for their age group or body weight or compared to the other side. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. And look, we've, we could go on and on and times against us here. Um, do you have any other, anything else that you wanted to add? Any other final thoughts? Uh, I think if you're a physio early in your career, obviously you want to be developing clinical reasoning and, and try to figure out why you're doing particular tests. Like we talked about at the last um, podcast, but then starting to develop your own way of of um, how you treat these people, and and you know I've gone down a strength and conditioning sort of a route, but um, other people will do different things, and I don't think there's necessarily a right and wrong, but you know whatever you find works best, and and you can convey to a patient, and at the end of the day, you know the the person you can can't help is the person you're not seeing and and if you can develop rapport with people and uh, find a way to measure stuff and then get them to buy into the idea of getting stronger or fitter or whatever it might be then that's the person you can help so lots of tools out there and lots of different ways to do things and um, at the end of the day if you can help someone and you can get across some information to them as to how they can go about helping themselves then I think that's the key. Beautiful. Well said. And this is why we're having these conversations to, to open up ideas for different ways of doing things. And we've certainly learned a lot from you here today in the, in the last episode about your approach, specific approach to golf and the PGA and, and also some of your perspectives on objective measures of strength. So it's fantastic. Um, there's, okay. there's so much more we could talk about. We're out of time. 
But thank you again, Jordan. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast and we'll have to do it again. Absolutely. No problem at all, mate. Awesome. Okay. So until next time, this is Jordan Rutherford and Luke Perriton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 